Uh, the Christmas song we just sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is probably my favorite uh, Christmas carol, if you will. And it's an ancient song. A number of years ago, we did a series through each one of those designations of Jesus Christ, the name for Jesus Christ, this Messiah who's come, as God has promised. And there's actually seven verses to that song, seven different designators. It was an ancient uh, song that was uh, probably written about the 7th century A.D. And uh, Don and I were talking yesterday because uh, the ancient church would take one of those designators per day, seven days leading up to Christmas. And actually, they did it in the reverse order so that when you hit Christmas, it was O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or God with us. And so they would reverse the order, but it always fell, or they tried to make it fall, that day spring name on the winter solstice, which was yesterday. And, of course, uh, I think James John Donne, uh, the poet, uh, called the winter solstice the year's midnight. It is the shortest, darkest day of the year. Uh, and uh, the church was remembering to look forward to day spring. And what does that mean, that word day spring? Well, it comes uh, primarily out of uh, the book of Malachi, where in Malachi 4.2, uh, the prophet writes, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise. With healings in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And I thought of that this morning as I looked out our window, and we have the blessing of seeing the sun come up where we live and if you were up early enough, you could see the sun peeking through under the overcast, and it was just marvelous. It was beautiful this morning, and I thought of that designator for Jesus Christ as the day spring, this one. In the ancient church, they called them the antiphons. And when we sing, oh, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and that was a plea or a, a, a way of singing and addressing God himself, and they would practice those antiphons for these seven days leading up to Christmas. But I was thinking of that and thinking about another thing I read about is churches in Europe and in the, the Middle East, Christian churches from time of old, faced east. And I thought, I don't know if those who designed this building understood that because you all are facing east. Uh, but it was the anticipation of the sunrise, the anticipation of day spring coming upon us, and it was a picture of life itself, of birth, the new birth in Jesus Christ. And so here we are in this grand cathedral, and uh, we worship our Lord Jesus Christ. But that is a great, great hymn. Uh, this morning we are continuing our journey uh, in Advent. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent this year, and uh, we will complete my part of the journey, and then Wes Crago will finish it on Christmas Eve uh, as we anticipate celebrating the coming and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have do, been doing a journey through the text on the redemptive plan of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've looked at Genesis chapter 3, the seed of promise, and where we see the first mention of a Savior who is going to come and rescue people from their sins. We looked at Genesis chapter 22, the son of promise, where Abraham and Isaac are a foreshadowing or a picture of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for me. And last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, the story of promise. And uh, those to the Old Testament, we're leaving the Old Testament today, and we're going to the book of John, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the New Testament, where we're going to see a statement of promise. And so if you take your copy of Scripture and turn to the Gospel of John in your New Testaments. 
By the way, we in Christendom call them the New Testaments, and uh, yet uh, it is the Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you turn to John chapter 1, and I will read verses 1 through 5, and then skip over to verses 14 through 18. If you would stand as an act of worship for the reading of God's Word this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was in the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Lord, this morning we pray that you would teach us from this passage today In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated. A number of years ago now, uh, the remains of Buddha were moved from Phnom Penh, uh, uh, Cambodia, up to Udong, Cambodia. It's not a very long journey, but it is a journey. And the purported ashes and the remains of Buddha were moved to a brand new temple in Udong. And the temple evidently cost about $4.5 million. You can see it on, if you uh, do a Google search, you can see the temple where it was. But it's estimated in that procession of taking these remains up to uh, be uh, interred at this temple at Udang, Cambodia, over 1 million people joined the procession. 10% of Cambodia's population was in that Procession. In fact, the road, the highway was so crowded that people had to get off and slog their way through the rice paddies to make it up to Udang. And uh, that shrine was the, ch- the site that was chosen for this. And it's sure, and it has been a destination for people who adhere to the Buddhist faith, monks and other pilgrims who go there. But amidst all the prayers, the hoopla, the incense sticks, one thing is certain, Buddha is still dead. And we weep for the millions who do not realize that, that the one they depend upon is not living, he is dead. But we rejoice. In fact, the Advent theme today is joy, and this should give you great joy if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that we follow a risen Lord. We believe in a Savior who is alive and interceding for us. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus Christ is the Savior. The Apostle Paul tells us that because Jesus lives, death for us is not an ending point. This is not all there is, that there is more. There is more to come. Therefore, as we rejoice in that, we think of that, we come to this fourth Advent Sunday and we look at this passage, which is a statement of promise. And the question to ask ourselves, and is the fundamental question of all the world really, is who is this Jesus? He's a historical figure that is... You cannot debate that fact. Jesus existed. He walked on this earth. And who do you think that Jesus Christ is? Who is he? It's the most important question you or I will ever ask and ever face. 
because it is a question that is inescapable. Our world tries to escape it by glossing it over and coming up with all sorts of excuses not to face that question, but sooner or later, and it better be sooner, you must face that question because the quality of your life here on earth and your eternal destiny depends on the answer you give. Who is this child we celebrate, this birth of this babe in Bethlehem? Who is this one? Well, John tells us something about this one who came as a babe in Bethlehem. But yet the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the Gospels have a different purpose. I don't know if you were aware of that. I think I've taught it before. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels because they are similar in approach and content. And yet each Gospel has a different theme or different purpose in writing. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king. Matthew is primarily a Jewish book written to a Jewish audience and population, and they were looking forward to this king who would rescue them, this Messiah who would come and rescue them and set up a kingdom here on earth. And Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus that connects him with David because the Davidic kingdom was promised in prophecy in the Old Testament, and it would last forever, and Jesus fulfills that. And he also is connected to Abraham through that genealogy. So he has impeccable credentials to be the king. Matthew presents Jesus as king. Mark presents Jesus as a servant, a servant. And he starts with the preaching of John the baptizer, who was the forerunner, the one who came before to introduce the nation to their Messiah. Luke presents Jesus in his humanity. Of course, Luke was a physician, and so he was concerned about the physical frame that we occupy. And so he presents Jesus in his humanity, fully man. And he gives us this prediction in the beginning part of the birth of John the baptizer. Also, the birth narrative, which we're very familiar with in the book of Luke. But John here presents Jesus in his deity, not only is he fully man, as, as Luke uh, points out, but John points out that Jesus is fully God. This is a theological prologue, if you will, in the first part of John. It's almost as if the Apostle John is saying, I want you to consider Jesus in his teaching and deeds, but you will not understand the good news of Jesus in its fullest sense unless you view him from this point of view. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, and his words and his deeds are those of the perfect God-man. This passage reveals Jesus in a way that is absolutely essential for us, for each person to recognize that Jesus is fully God. He is fully divine. If he's just another good teacher, he has no power to save us, no power to give us a future and a hope. But if he is the fully God-man, the perfect sacrifice for us, then we have everything. I realize that this passage is not a traditional Christmas message. John does not write about angels and shepherds and sheep and stars and magi and all of that. But he does something the other gospel writers do not. He puts the greatest Christmas delivery of all time in context. He tells us what we need to know to have the right Christmas. So today we are going to consider the person of Christmas. We're going to consider the power of Christmas, and we are going to contemplate the very purpose of Christmas as we are leading up to this day. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, we see this great statement there that uh, we need to consider uh, the person of Christmas. 
you know, this season, these holidays and these times off from work and school and all that and the shopping, and there are plenty of distractions out there, aren't there? There are personalities, presence, practices, traditions, everything that comes up in our families, in our personal lives, and it can be very distracting, but this verse, verse 1, takes us back to the very essence of why we even celebrate Christmas. First of all, he is an eternal God, this one who's come, this word, which we know when it says in the beginning was the word, the word is another designator for Jesus Christ. We know that from verse 14, which I read for us earlier. He is eternally God. In the beginning was the Word. This phrase does not imply, it does not mean that Jesus Christ had a beginning. This is a different sense. It means that the Word has always existed in eternity past. The word was is in the imperfect tense in the Greek language here, and it signifies that it's an action that occurred in the past, and it has continuing uh, action into the future and into the present. You could read it this way. You could paraphrase this first part of this verse this way. In the beginning was the Word, is the Word, and always will be the Word. Jesus Christ is eternal in the past, eternal in the future. He is eternity, God. He is faithful in that. Uh, Paul in Colossians chapter 1 says he is the image of the invisible God. As we saw earlier that Uh, No man has seen God, but they have seen Jesus Christ. He came to reveal God, and he is faithful into explaining the divine intellect and the divine heart. If you want to see the Father, look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul uses a terminology there. It's like a coin in your pocket, and you look at the likeness on that coin, and you know exactly what the die back in Philadelphia or Denver looks like or San Francisco. I don't know where all the mints are now. But if you look at a coin, a quarter or 50 cent piece, you know exactly what the dye in that plant looks like. And that's the picture that Jesus gives us, that we know what God looks like by looking at Jesus Christ. There's not the slightest bit of discrepancy. He is the eternal reality. He's called the true and faithful and the true witness. In Revelation chapter 3, towards the end of our Bibles, in addressing the church at Laodicea, he writes, the amen and the faithful and true witness, referring to Jesus Christ, this one who is come to save the world. Secondly, Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. He doesn't speak impartial impartial terms. He speaks in the fullness of who and what God is, his wisdom, his power, his goodness. He speaks for the whole God, express image of his person, so that when we have seen him, we have seen the Father. And, of course, we see him through the beauty of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit who leads us there. You know, in theology, they call it the facets of theology. And it's like a diamond. I was reading about the Hope Diamond. I guess it's in the Smithsonian. It's, uh, it's a diamond that is 45 or 46 carats. And no, you can't, it's too heavy for your, for your finger. You know, it's just too heavy. But it's a blue diamond because it has boron, trace elements of boron in it. And originally it was 110 carats before they started carving it up. But it's a 45-carat diamond. But you look at that and you can see pictures of it online. And it's faceted. And so you look at one facet and you look at another facet. And it's difficult to see the whole thing at once because we can't be around it all at the same time. But Jesus Christ reveals to us the Father in his wholeness, his fullness, just like seeing that whole diamond at once. And he is forceful in what he has said. Jesus Christ is meek, and yet he is strong. Meekness is power under control. 
You know, sometimes human words are powerful. We're seeing a lot of that in our political scene, our national scene today. A lot of words that are hurled out that are powerful, that are destructive. And yet Jesus Christ, his words are mighty. And the fact that Psalm 29 tells us the voice of the Lord is powerful. He is eternally God. In the beginning was the word. The second thing we see is equal with God, equality with God, and the word was with God, the second phrase in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. That word, uh, translated word, that phrase, translated word, it means, it's the Greek word logos or logos, depending on how you pronounce it. It means, refers to speech, reasoning, explanation, a word about something. That is who Jesus is. He is called the word because a word is a visible expression of an invisible thought. Have you ever thought about that? You can think of something, but unless you express it, nobody knows what it is. Nobody knows what you're thinking unless you express that thought. So Jesus Christ is the word because he is the visible expression of an invisible thought. He is the perfect expression of who God is. And that little phrase, with, you know, this just demonstrates how important each word of Scripture is. I firmly believe God has designed his word that each word, every jot and tittle, which are two Hebrew uh, markers on letters, is important. In the word with there, and the word was with God, the word with means face-to-face or towards each other. This tells us that Jesus was face-to-face with God. In other words, he is God's equal. He is God's equal. And so we're talking about the Trinity here. We are Trinitarian in our theology All Christians, if they are truly Christians, are Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one essence. Yes, God is one, but there are three persons in one essence. The word was with God. That expression implies that he had conscious existence distinct from the absolute one who was with him. And so he is equal with God. I was reading an article by John Cass. He's a, a writer for the Chicago Tribune. He wrote about a man named Bush, B-O-U-C-H, Bush, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, who happens to be a waiter in a tavern in Chicago, in downtown Chicago. And this man decided to write a letter to the king of his homeland in Morocco. The king, Mohammed VI, is immensely popular because he often interacts with his subjects in public. He has freed political prisoners, helps the poor and disabled. And when this Bush wrote to him from Chicago, King Mohammed, true to his nature, wrote right back. And uh, he was talking to John Kloss, this Bush guy, and he said, look at the letters. These are letters from the king. If I meet him, I will be so happy. Well, John Kloss, the columnist, he said, how many guys serving beer and hamburgers in Chicago Tavern have a correspondence with a royal monarch? The columnist talked to Morocco's deputy council general in Chicago and was told that it isn't unusual for the king to write personal letters to his subjects abroad. It happens a lot, the official said. He loves his subjects. And you think of King Mohammed VI loves his subjects, you ought to meet Jesus, the king of kings, and read his precious letter to you because he knows every hair on your head. He knows you perfectly and eternally. So this word is eternal. He is equal to God. And then thirdly, he is essentially God. Look at the next phrase, and the word was God, and the word was God. The statement, the word was God, is the clearest statement of deity of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. 
Not only is the word co-eternal, co-equal with God, the word is God. That is the statement. And only Jesus could say those things. Later on in the book of John, we see that Jesus said, the Father and I are one. He said, uh, so before Abraham came into existence, I am. He affirms that the word and God are one in existence. And that's why he was accused of blasphemy by the Pharisees and the leadership of Israel and tried and put on the cross of Calvary because he was blaspheming or they said he was blaspheming God Almighty. Uh, You know, none of us with our own physical fathers, my own dad, I cannot say I and my father are one. That just is not true. Only Jesus can say that and be 100% accurate to that statement. When God sent his son into the world, John 3.16, for God so loved you that he gave Jesus Christ uh, his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus Christ came and so he was equal and uh, equally and eternally and essentially God. In other words, over in Luke, when the angels came and said, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, in chapter 2, they were announcing the birth of God in human flesh. And through his life, he proved it over and over. When he told the people, Peace I bring to you. He told the, the lame man, Rise up and walk. Lazarus, come forth from the dead. Your sins will be forgiven you. It is finished. All these things only God could say. We can say them, but there's no power behind them. There's nothing that would back them up. Only Jesus backed up his words. Every miracle, uh, he declared him to be God. He alone is the person of Christmas. And the word was God. It means union with the eternal. So mysterious to transcend all of our conceptions of Trinitarianism. We have a difficulty understanding the Trinity. We try to come up with illustrations, yet they all fall because it is a thing that's taught in Scripture that we don't quite get, so it's an issue of faith as we understand what God is saying. Verse 2 just affirms Jesus' equal, essential deity, eternal, equal, and essential. In verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. In other words, he is eternal in the past and eternity future, that. And so this person of Christmas, then we need to consider the power. It's one thing to talk about a person, but then we need to consider what is the power behind this person? What is the ability of this person to do anything? And we look at that in verse 3, in verse 3. You know, if, if I were to ask you what is the, most, the best example of God's power, what would you think of the greatest manifestation that God has done throughout history? And all of us might have a little bit different answer. Some of us would say creation. Obviously, creating the universe is a pretty big, powerful deal, especially when it's done by a word. His miracles, others of us might talk about the cross, about his resurrection. Uh, But I, I would submit, as I've thought about it this week, that the greatest expression of God's power was when he added humanity to his deity and came to live and die among us. Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Think about that for a moment, this one who came in human flesh, perfectly God, fully God, fully man. And what struck me today as I was thinking of the fact that this babe resided in Mary's womb for nine months in this, in this community where she could have gotten run over by an ox cart or killed, but God sustained and watched over him. And Jesus Christ was there in the womb. And I'm just guessing, I'm just guessing. Now, I don't remember being in the womb. My mom said I was hers, so I believe her. 
but I think Jesus knows all of that because he knows everything. He knows exactly what we went through, even though we can't remember it. And I've been told that birth is kind of traumatic, and that's why we don't remember it. And uh, I'm not sure about that, but Jesus Christ remembers that. He is the power of Christmas. He is the maker of creation. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, all things came into being through him. All things came into being through him. This tells us that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. His birth as a baby even becomes more amazing. This creator of creation humbled himself and became the creature of creation. God became dependent upon a human mother. Jesus, who was the agent of creation, stepped out of eternity, laid aside his glory, and entered the world as a human baby. That is the power behind Christmas. That is why this season is not about trees and tinsels and packages and parties, bows and boxes, meals and mistletoe. All those things are great. We all enjoy them. And yet he made it all and he holds it all together. He is the maker of creation. The second part of verse 3, he is the master of creation. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Not only did he make the universe, but his power holds it all together. Colossians chapter 1, 16 through 17 tell us that. Where it means that as a man, he is the one who is the glue of the galaxies, as one person said. For those of you who are woodworkers, furniture makers, you know that a glue joint of two pieces of wood put together is the strongest piece, isn't it? If it's done correctly, the glue joint will not break before the wood around it breaks. It is the strongest piece of your project. And that is like the earth. And God is the glue that holds us all together. He is the one that gives you the next breath of your lungs, the next beat of your heart. He numbers our days. He is the one who sustains us time and time again. And that should bring us great joy because, first of all, Jesus Christ is righteous, completely perfect. There is no sin in him. He doesn't make any mistakes. Can you imagine that? Not one mistake. And so whatever comes into our life, whatever we're going through, those are not mistakes. Listen to these things about the creative power of Jesus Christ. I am told that uh, there's nothing that man can make that runs as it should. In fact, I've read that the space shuttle program was probably the closest thing to perfection ever manufactured by a human being. And they say they've estimated that the space shuttles were 99.999% perfect. But remember the Challenger? We remember that that little imperfection had consequences, didn't it? But you take a great look at our great planet, this thing that Jesus Christ has given us, and we realize it does not run in a true circle. It travels three directions at the same time. It revolves on its axis. It travels around the sun. Its path is affected and defected by other planets, and still it does not lose time. Very infinitesimal amount of time. It is said one second every 100 years. We can only say that Jesus is the one who controls this. We look at the building block of the universe, which is the atom. It's nearly so small that each atom is less than 150 millionth of an inch in diameter. If we could take the molecules of a single drop of water, convert them into grains of sand, there would be enough sand to build a concrete highway a half mile wide and one foot thick all the way from New York to San Francisco. And there are 120 drops of water in a single teaspoonful. 
I looked this up to make sure that these guys weren't, weren't fooling me. Uh, and uh, what I came across was scientists estimate that in this uh, drop of water, it's like 5.0124896 times 10 to the 21st power. That's a lot of zeros out there, and it's a bigger number than I can even say. So I have to take it that these guys know what they're talking about. But then you think about your own body, and it contains 100 trillion molecules of atoms. That's 10 to the 14th power. And when, whenever you look at the universe with this, a telescope to see how big it is, or you look at, the, at this universe, this physical body with a microscope to see how small it is, you see order, symmetry, design, harmony, and beauty. And only a fool would conclude that there was no God and be, deny the fact that God is in control. It means that God is in control. When you think of the big picture and the small picture, you think of your own life, your own family, your own extended types of things that you deal with. It means God is control this Christmas. It seems like our nation's out of control. We see a lot of despair. We see a lot of anger, a lot of adversity that we face day by day. But remember that God is in control. The world is not spinning out of control. It's in the hands of the one who made it, the one who's working his purpose to which he designed them. He controls all that was born into the world. When you think of this helpless infant in a womb and then birthed in a stable in Bethlehem, was God in control? Yes, he was. He has a plan and a purpose for all of that. He did this because he loves you individually. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards you, towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the person of Christmas, the power of Christmas, now we come to contemplate the purpose of Christmas, the person, the power, and the purpose. And it begs the question, why? You know, why is the best question? Why is the best question of anything? Why did the Creator desire to become part of His creation? Why did God put, human, put on human flesh and walk among men? Why did He come into this world to grow up, to minister for a short while, and then die on a Roman cross, crucified? What was the purpose of Christmas? I just advanced to you. The first thing was He came to bring life into deadness. Life in the deadness. When Jesus came to the world, he entered the world filled with dead people. Dead people know, know, don't know that they are dead. The Bible affirms this. Jesus said, I am the strength of earthly life. He, we are alive, alive today because of his good grace. He makes life possible. Job in the Old Testament, the earliest Old Testament book record is Job. And Job was writing in all his travail and his adversity. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is really a statement of worship, of Job's focus on worshiping who God is. So Jesus is the strength of our earthly life no matter what happens. Secondly, he is the secret of an effective life the secret of an effective life. It has been said, three things make a life worth living. The first one is a self fit to live with, a self fit to live with. And secondly, a faith fit to live by. And finally, a purpose fit to live for. Only Jesus can give you all three of those. Uh, he gives life and he gives it abundantly. The word abundantly in John 10.10 10 means superior, extraordinary, surpassing, uncommon. That is the kind of life he came to give us. He gives us purpose. He gives us the ability to live with ourselves and a faith fit to live by. So he is the 
strength of earthly life, the secret of effective life. Thirdly, he is the source of eternal life. Those who know Jesus by faith will live eternally. Remember his promise over 150 times in the New Testament. The condition for everlasting life is simply belief in Jesus and who he is and what he has said he's going to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt shalt be saved. Uh, For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if you believe in him, you will not perish but will have everlasting life. We look at the consequence of all those promises in Scripture and we also should look for the condition to receive the promise or avoid the promise if it's a condemnation. But in that verse, the promise is of everlasting life. So how do we get it? Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. He is the source of eternal life. So he came to bring life in the deadness. And secondly, he came to bring light in the darkness, light in the darkness, the other purpose of Christmas. Now, a person who does not know Jesus is more than just spiritually dead. He is also spiritually darkened. Jesus came to change all that. He said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This morning, if we could have seen the sunrise and that picture of day spring, that is a picture of Jesus Christ come to bring salvation. He is the light of the world into our spiritual darkness. Just as he stood in the darkness at the time of creation and said, let there be light, there was day. He also stood in the midst of the cold darkness of my life when I was 28 years old and brought light to my soul. I had no hope. I was in complete deadness and darkness, and Jesus Christ saved me. And I praise God for that. You know, many people today are a little bit messed up and more than a little bit messed up when it comes to what they think Christmas is all about. Their primary concern is giving the perfect gift, but, you know, only God can do that. And only God can give us the perfect gift, and he does. He gives it to us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus in the world for that. He is the greatest gift He brings life to our dead souls and light to our darkened hearts. And he gave this all through the Lord Jesus Christ, this word that we read about here in Scripture. In verses 4 and 5, In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. In 1951, King George VI, who was Queen Elizabeth's father, He addressed the British Commonwealth on New Year's Eve at a moment that was difficult in history of the world as well as uh, on the brink of uncertainty. And despondency and uncertainty filled the air, and the king's own body was racked by cancer. And before that year was over, his life on this earth would end, but unaware of his own physical illnesses at that point, he uttered these memorable words, quoting King George VI. I said to the man at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I might walk safely into the unknown. And he said to me, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. It shall be for you safer than the light and better than what you know. And so we list our present litany of woes, the 24-7 news cycle, the moral decay that we're faced with. It is easy to grow despondent at this time of the year and sense uncommon, uncommon doom Uh, oncoming dune, excuse me. The ideas we see are not brand new around us. The world has been in trails of distress and travails of distress for centuries. Other moments 
in history, people have understood and walked into the darkness and put their hand in God's hand, knowing it would be better than what we know and what we have seen. So this Christmas, this new year, I would challenge you, uh, start reading the Gospel of John. It is really the only book in the New Testament written to people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And it's a good reminder to go through the Gospel of John and uh, to real understand the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation he gives. I've been reading an Advent, uh, a, uh, Advent uh, book, a little booklet about uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and the O Antiphons of Christmas, those seven days leading up to Christmas. And we talked about the one day spring, but there's wisdom, Lord, root, or tree of Jesse, key of David, day spring, king, God with us, Emmanuel. And as you list those out, of course, uh, this, this book lists them in Latin. And so Latin, it's Sapentia, which is wisdom, Adonai, Lord, Radix, which is root, Clavis, key, Orens is day spring, Rex is king, and Emmanuel, of course, God with us. As an interesting formula there coming out of the ancient church and the capital letter of each one of those things in Latin spells Erocras, E-R-O-C-R-A-S, C-R-A-S, yeah, Erocras. And the Latin words mean, tomorrow I will come. Tomorrow I will come. O come, O come, Emmanuel. He is faithful in his promises and he will fulfill what he has said. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for this day of life. Thank you again for this Christmas season. I thank you for each one here. We thank you for the Gospel of John. We thank you for the Apostle John for using him to write this down, this great theological treatise and this idea that we can know the Almighty God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. We thank you for your work of salvation. I thank you for each one here. And this morning, Lord, if anyone here has never believed in you for everlasting life, today can be the day of their salvation right where they sit, and I pray for them, Lord, that they would make that decision, that choice, to believe in you for everlasting life and that they'd be assured of that. And, Lord, for all of us who have already done that, who are believers in Jesus Christ, just remind us through this Christmas season of the amazing fact of the person, the power, and the purpose of Christmas and that you know all of this and that we can trust you with it. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing this last song together?